0: This is Security All In and uh, my name is Sam Curry. This is the podcast where we talk to folks in security and see how they got into security, when they went all in on it, or when perhaps security went all in with them. And I'm joined today by my longtime friend and colleague, Adam Shostak. Adam, I don't remember when we first met. It seems that we're constantly bumping. I think just last week we were advising a third party mutually, and I, I didn't know you were also advising them, but we found ourselves on the same conference call. So do you remember when we first met? I do not, I do not. I'm bad at
1: remembering first meetings, because I do a lot of, hey, let's get on a call, let's talk about this. And sometimes that goes somewhere, sometimes it doesn't. And so a lot of them are, okay, we met, we talked about this thing, but we were very task-focused or mission-focused instead of who is this person sitting across from me or sitting on the far side of the internet from me? Right.
0: Actually, I think we've interacted around a company I'm on the board of, Secretary Labs. I know we interacted around Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout-out to Tony and FortiCode. Uh, that was last week. And, of course, you were big in GRC and, and risk stuff right around the same time I was, so Let's just say it's been a while, and I think I just found out before we started recording that you were part of Zero Knowledge Systems years ago in Montreal, and I was shocked. I'm a, I'm a Montrealer originally. That's where I was born and spent my first 18 years. So uh, we're constantly finding out new things about each other. Indeed. Indeed. It's it's fun that way. Sometimes I talk to the CISOs or folks who had... A, a big influence on security, and they usually have some sort of title, but you kind of advise and touch a lot of things. How do you, in those first meetings, how do you introduce yourself? I know you have a consultancy, but you say, hi, I'm Adam, and of course introductions are always a little awkward. How do you describe you? How do I describe me? I describe myself
1: as a problem solver. I look for big problems that the solution is not, hey, we're going to buy this thing or we're going to send this person to this training and then they'll come back knowing these things and we'll be good. And so, for example, when I helped to create the CVE, the problem we faced was we didn't really know what a vulnerability was. It was my first startup. We were building what we now call vulnerability scanners. When was that roughly? That was 97, 98. Right. Right around. And and I went, you know, I could tell you the CVE story or I could tell you the me story. Let me introduce myself a little bit. Please
0: do. You you, you choose the order here. here.
1: Yeah. So I've been in security for a long time. I've helped create a lot of things like the CVE a number of conference series, I've built a number of startups, I spent a decade at Microsoft where they had me write about, think and write about threat modeling a lot. So I've built software and a game and a book on that subject. So these days I help people with the question of how do I infuse security into what I'm doing. And a lot of that is around threat modeling and secure development, and a lot of that is around, like the call we were on last week, how do we help this startup or that company get its product to market in a way that resonates and delivers value to people?
0: Yeah, it's both uh, finding the essence of the value and then for whom Who's going to realize it? How they're going to do that? Mm -hmm. That that is non-trivial, right? There's often a sense of if you build it, they will come. But I I love this idea of infusing security. Let's talk about you a bit, though. When did you first... This is called Security All-In, right? So Mm -hmm. what's your first security memory rather than your first childhood memory, right? This is not a a therapy (laughs) question. What's your first memory of security or experience of it, either as a child or early in your career? Because 97 naturally you you were what 10 years old i'm kidding i'm trying to, uh, you know, people can't see we're about the same age i think but what's your first security memory here so my first professional work in security
1: was in the early 90s i was a systems admin at a medical research lab in boston
0: you're and, a bostonian right that's yep uh, yeah
1: yep and The lab was doing amazing things, still is doing amazing things in terms of visualizations for surgeons. Mm -hmm. And so we were dealing with real patient data that was on the internet or connected to the internet. The data wasn't on the internet. This was before the web even. Was this your first tech job or? It
0: was. It was. And we had to protect that data. This has the feel of a short-term thing. Was this like an internship? Was it a... Uh... No, no. This was this was my first job out of college. I found myself working as
1: a systems admin because I didn't really know what I was going to do. Mm. And so I got
0: an introduction and they said, okay, well, you know, come on in and we'll see how it goes. And what was, in protecting this, you and I have also talked about how it was easier in our day in some ways because there weren't the rules, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember when the common body of knowledge was being created and contributed, and you with CVEs, right? This was stuff that hadn't yet been codified. What was security for you in the early 90s version of Adam? You're looking at this medical application and you're saying, I got to make sure nobody violates this, that we didn't even have the same rules like HIPAA or FINE. Mm -hmm. How did you tackle that?
1: So, this was the early days of firewalls. And so I built a firewall using an old Sun workstation, made that the thing that controlled access to the lab's network of computers, over time used PGP and S-key to secure the way people could telnet in remotely. This was before the days of SSH even.
0: Oh yeah. That didn't come till late nineties, really.
1: Yep. And so, you know, you built what you could build. I remember this was, this was the time when Dan Farmer and Vitzy Venema yep. wrote Satan and Dan Farmer got fired. I remember
0: that so well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He got in trouble for that. And so
1: the rate of release of security tools was way lower. You know,
0: I used... That's the grade used- of innovation of the bad guys, to be honest. It was a simpler time.
1: It was a simpler time. It was a simpler time.
0: Put it, put it in perspective. I was at a company then called Signal Nine Solutions. I think you know Phil Atfield as well. We mm-hmm. were doing VPNs and later, accidentally, the personal firewall. In. It was a complete mystery. We didn't foresee it becoming what it became. But, uh yeah, so you tackled this, and it was early days. PGP, you'd S key, pre-SSH. And um, did you take a network approach where you're looking at the data first? Did you look at identities at beyond the firewall, I mean? Because kudos on that first move. What did you do after that?
1: So went out, became a consultant. I broke some things the way people do. I broke the RSA token. I broke the firewall toolkit. And I said, wow, uh-uh.
0: these things are easy to break. What does that mean? So is that the moment you got the bug? I mean, you did security before it, but that, wow, these things are easy to break is sort of like, it's like a developmental stage for children, right? It, but no, for, I had for- the bug at that point. I, again, the early days,
1: it was easy, Steve Bellovin and Marcus Raynham were on the firewalls mailing list. Yeah, You could talk to them, right? They were just folks trying to solve this problem, and... Marcus had written a couple of firewalls at that point. Wow, Mm -hmm. Steve, Steve and Bill had written the first book on firewalls, but it wasn't this million person profession. If we had held a black hat back then, it would have filled one of the rooms that the conference now
0: fills and not one of the big ones. In fact, in those days, RSA conference had about 150 to 250 people. It was crypto. It was cryptography, even. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I, I remember when Bruce set up a card table <laughs> and created the Vendor Expo. Yep.
0: Yep. Funny that. So now let's shift gears a bit. Uh, sure. You're, you're all in on security at this point. I think um, that then flavored going forward. You were in a number of startups as well. We mentioned Zero Knowledge earlier, and I certainly remember Netect. Wow. Good, um, good to yeah. go on. <laughs> I, I met. A, I can't remember his name. I met. I met someone the other day who was there as well. Um, Probably Mark Cam Mark Cam. Oh, I know Mark Cam. I knew him from CA days. He's he's wonderful. He he got into mobile for a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Cam, yeah, and reflective as well. So, um, what was it like for you? This would have been what? To maybe <laughs> late nineties through mid two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I had gone inside the big company. So. What was it like in those startups, and what kind of roles did you have there? Were you doing the same kind of eliciting the message that you do now, or was it uh, was it you went from systems admin to doing a lot of this cool stuff? What were you doing through those startups?
1: So at the tech, I was responsible for the product and the volume research team. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a very product
0: centric role. Yeah. Once you get the product bug, it's hard, isn't it? You're uh... Yeah, I love building things and
1: figuring out what you need to build and what's going to resonate in the marketplace. This is before we had the lean startup, before we had, All that amazing thinking about how to structure things. It was before venture capital, it was before blogs. And so it was before venture capitalists were blogging and explaining what their life was like and what they looked for in companies. And so, in a
0: lot of conversions, took a year and a half, right? (laughs) You know, yeah.
1: You had to order your servers and wait for them to show up. You had to actually burn your software onto CDs, and if you were really professional when you were shipping your first versions, you would burn them onto aluminum CDs instead of the gold ones that everyone knew you were doing one by one in your office. Right. And so in a lot of ways, it was far more difficult to build something than it is today. But the flip side of that was fewer people were doing it. So there was less of a crowd. There was less of this, you know, there was still a crush on the show floor. But when I compare that crush to the crush today, where getting your message through the noise is so challenging,
0: it was a little easier. Now, let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk about. I've always thought of you as a very humble person and also a naturally curious person. Academically, what did you study or what have you found fascinating about curiosity, playing on the curiosity side? What makes you go, hmm, and you look at it outside of security now? If it has an influence on security, that's fantastic. But What gets your inner curiosity meter or your magnet turned on, if you will? So, these days, I'm spending
1: a lot of time looking at how people engineer other things. I was at a company recently that's been shipping aircraft parts for 75 years. They're really good at it. And they brought me in to help them think about how do we secure these things.
0: Is that because they're becoming connected? or? is it new challenges i mean we just i was oh just becoming becoming,
1: becoming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no they are connected yeah and they're realizing that that connectivity and when i say realizing their executives are seeing that security is an important part of what's happening And the fact that it's obscure and nobody knows about it is no longer protecting them. And their executives see that. right? And so the question is, how do you take an engineering culture, which has grown up through, I don't know, five, six generations of leadership of this is how we do things here and not bolt security on, but vacuum mold security on so that it's an overlay that's in every nook and cranny and every crevice.
0: Yeah, that's a massive challenge. And so you've got this bug, if you will, to lift your head out of the security. I'm going to mix metaphors here, I know it. But to lift your head out of the sort of security tech channel and look at what's happening in the rest of the world, and you suddenly find security is also relevant. It's the welcome to the next layer of abstraction up, the stuff that you're doing is still relevant kind of thing.
1: Well, the thing that I've really seen over and over again is that it's hard to bolt security on and have it work, Hmm. right? You really, the places, some of the most impactful work I've done was at Microsoft, where- You were there for like
0: a decade, I think, wasn't it?
1: Most of a decade, yeah. And Talk about every time we made a change to the Windows operating system, every time we made a change to Office, that went out to, you know, on the order of a billion computers. And so the little change you make to each of those computers, everything you do matters.
0: It wasn't the same scale, but I'll never forget the first time I actually killed Microsoft Office on 80 million systems. I said the first time, by the way. (laughs) this This was a big QA lesson early on in my career. I probably shouldn't say this in a broadcast way, but whatever. Also, uninstalled my own product once on 50 million systems. Absolute pain. So you had billions. That's frightening. It's
1: frightening, but you step up.
0: Yeah. Right. And frankly, I remember Microsoft having to make it less painful we had there was a meme before we called the memes that said the position of your mouse has changed please reboot for this change ticket. <laughs> right? like, we joked about it and then we had the pat you know the regular patching patch tuesday and everything else but microsoft got there right but they were the first to have that kind of footprint and you were at the center of it
1: yeah i don't want to take more credit than i deserve i joined they were already very focused on how do we secure what we're doing at scale the security pushes had happened the bill memo had happened there was a team focused on secure development and i joined that team and said how do we threat model at scale which was a little bit different because it's not it's not bug finding it's not we're going to run a static analyzer and minimally impact the developers. We're gonna to have to teach the developers to think. We're gonna to have to think about security. They know how to think. They knew how to think. I was
0: Yeah, I was like, ooh, ooh, yeah. You have to teach them, more importantly, you have to change the way they do things, which is probably the hardest thing in security to do. Right? Yeah. I can't stand when I hear someone say, I had a good policy, the problem was the user. It's like, no, that's not a good policy. That's not a good policy, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. How are you measuring goodness if you can say that was a good policy? But the pressure was on you at Microsoft because in a sense the dark side, forget adware and, and spyware, which which were significant, I think, in this time frame, but the pressure was on because the dark side was growing in critical mass and capability. And if Microsoft took longer to do this, it got bigger. And frankly, at that time you had the entire install base that mattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah. now, you, yeah, now you, you left Microsoft. Was it to pursue this consulting and looking, taking this out and doing it on a wider scale? Are those related or am I inferring too much? So I left, there were
1: a couple of things that happened all at the same time and I left to build a startup. And as I was building that startup, which was really focused on helping the CISO get a grip on the portfolio of work that they had and the portfolio of controls, people would call me up and say, Adam, we'd like like some help threat modeling. We'd like some help with our secure development life cycle. And so on the one hand, I was working the phone, trying to get people into our development partner program and to beta test software we were building. And on the other hand, the phone was ringing with these requests. And eventually it just became clear that this was what the universe wanted me to be doing, was helping people with their security development activity, helping developers, helping operations folks learn to threat model, helping DevOps people learn to threat model and make it part of the way they do their jobs. And so that's where
0: I am today. So I, I think of you as a, um, as a methodical thinker, and I may be inferring that because I read your, your book on threat modeling. I have not read your more recent book, by the way, The New School of Information Security. Um, Other way around. The New School was 2008. Oh, I'm sorry. That was more, so I haven't read the older book, which is <laughs> which is my own fault. I think I became aware of it more recently. Do you have or do you think somewhere in your training or your approach to problems am i inferring too much on the based on the output is it chaotic and things emerge or do you have a systematic way of approaching problems because in some ways i get the impression that you have an analytical mind how do you describe how you tackle some of these things and is the writing process a big part of that or am i inferring too much are you thinking about the output are you how do you tackle new problem adam wade's in so there's a
1: lot there, but a lot of it is writing to think. I was taught to use techniques like free writing. Where were you taught that? Pen at? to paper, and you don't stop for some defined amount of time, 10, 15 minutes.
0: That sounds like creative writing. Where'd you learn it?
1: The school I went to, Simon's Rock, is a liberal arts school. And so that informs my way of tackling any problem is I start out with a lot of draft and a lot of that draft gets thrown away never to see the light of day. But it's part of getting too organized, right? If if I start out believing I know the answer, I usually don't get very far. But if I start out not sure even how to define the problem, and threat modeling for me is a problem like this, right? What do we mean when we threat model? What do we want to achieve? And I used to think we wanted to achieve more secure products. And I've moved away from that belief, right? I still aspire to that. But now, my goal for a threat modeling program is that executives are not surprised by what they ship. I love that. You know, if you would like to make the decision that anyone who knows the secret radio frequency on which you can transmit commands to your aircraft engine, anyone who knows that frequency can send a command, personally, I would find that a distressing
0: choice and you might find yourself in front of Congress trying to explain it. My heart just dropped when I thought that such a such a command channel might exist. Please continue. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I hope it doesn't. And to everyone listening, please don't find out. But I know you will. So please keep going, at him.
1: But if your management is going to take that decision in writing, okay. That's their job as executives.
0: And they're not surprised. Right.
1: They've, they're not surprised we can make a set of trade-offs about what we're doing. And that was not where I started with threat modeling, right? I started out with this is a security activity and this is what we're going to do. But I think one of the things that I do is I try to follow the discomfort.
0: I, look I, like, the, I would like that to be a motto for a school somewhere. Keep going.
1: <laughs> I look for the place where when I'm teaching it, it doesn't feel like I'm answering the question fully and honestly. And I I look inside and say, why is this? What can I learn from the fact that I don't believe my own answer as fully as I might? Hmm. And so the analytic result is saying, why is that? It's looking at my own writing and saying, do
0: i believe this you, should you know i'm step back from it and go does it is my intuitive self saying yes this is right
1: yeah or even can i argue with myself and i don't think we do enough of that and i think a lot of this stems from a challenge we have which is we don't know what success looks like mm. and so it's it's hard
0: and we 've got a we 've got a situation here where most of us in security came up by being the smartest person in the room, having the most technical answer mm-hmm. and the argument was external it 's i 'm going to prove to you that my hypothesis is correct, and very often you couldn 't prove it, so the smartest person in the room became the most adept at finding a quick answer and defending it best. I love the fact that you start from from a broad however people do it yours is writing. But a broad swath and exploration, a search for the answer, and following the discomfort, and then having an internal debate. That alone, I think, if anyone's listening, listen to that. That's solid. Sorry for interrupting.
1: No, and let me follow that a little bit. You know, one of the more impactful things I've done came out of a question that that my boss asked me. And it was a funny question because my boss was a very, very technical guy, used to be a Windows developer, and he came to me one day and said, Adam, how important are zero days? And I said, what? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, I was over in the European Commission, and they were grilling me about this and this and this, and every time I talked to them about SDL and patching and everything else, they kept wanting to talk about zero days. So, how important are they? And so I went and I did some digging and said what data might we have and how could I try and answer this question? And long story short, I ended up with data that allowed us to fix auto-run on XP and Vista. I mean to thank you for that, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. And if you're on the attack side, I'm sorry, but not very sorry. <laughs> The question I was asked was not, can you fix auto-run? Lots of people had taken a shot at that and not succeeded. But it was a willingness to follow that question to where it led. And instead of having the debate with the focus on, I'm right, hmm. take what I saw and go and share it and see what new questions came up and. There's a fellow, John Alspaugh, who used to be CTO at Etsy. And he has this wonderful blog that's way, way less frequent than I would like. And he talks in one of his posts about the difference between dialogue and discussion. And when he talks about a dialogue, he means like a platonic dialogue. It's a mutual search yeah. for truth. And that dialogue. Proceeds a discussion in which we cut off possibilities and we make a choice. And this is really powerful because what you were saying about the smartest guy in the room making his point is all about discussion, not dialogue in that framing. Right. And we need to get better at dialogue. We need to get better at active listening, at showing respect, at pulling in people who are not speaking up and giving them a space in which they can offer up their opinion and their perspective. And I think this is a very difficult cultural transformation in light of the challenges that you laid out about how we
0: grow up in this space. I think this is deep, deep insight. Unfortunately, we, we've only got a little bit of time left. I'm going to have a couple of questions for you, but I do want to mention for listeners, and you and I, I suspect you know this book. I'm going to recommend that people do a Google search on uh, the Reengineering alternative by William Schneider, which talks about various types of corporate culture. Those cultures that are all about subject matter expertise are called competence cultures. They have some virtues and some sins. I became exposed uh, in a cultivation culture to this notion of, you can think of it as the dialogue that you just mentioned, the five whys, the Toyota way. It's how do you follow and go to the data and see where it takes you? I, in particular, loved your take on, on your sort of creative process. But given that we, we only have a few moments left, I, I really have um, two questions for you. And I think we could probably talk about some of this all day. The first is and it's going to seem a lot of left field, but this made me think our dialogue so far has made us think, made me think about books. What are you reading right now? If it has a security relevance or not, feel free to call that out. Are you reading anything good at the moment? And are you in something that you're enjoying, or that, or if you don't, by all means, tell us about that too. Are you reading anything good at the moment? So the book I just finished,
1: which I'm I'm thinking a lot about, is called The Weather Experiment.
0: Oh, that sounds cool.
1: And it's all about the people who first got a grip on what weather was. And you know, it's easy today, we have satellite pictures of hurricanes. Hmm. People figured out- Thank what you. shout hu- out to the
0: NOAA, by the way, keep going.
1: Yeah, NOAA, NASA, but people figured out what hurricanes were and how they moved by corresponding with letters to people who were- trying to take wind speed readings, and even what a wind speed reading is was something that was invented. Mm. When people stopped using words without a numeric scale behind them and said, gust is stronger than breeze. And we're gonna use the word gust in a specific way. And then they started putting some numbers. A gust is more than 30 rotations of this thing in a minute. And they figured out what hurricanes were by saying, hey, the wind was blowing in this direction at this place at this time, and then it was blowing in this direction at this place at this time.
0: Whoa, that's amazing. So Adam, I would love someday, maybe our next chat together, to talk about the security experiment. That would be
1: really interesting. So that's the book that I'm reading. The other one I will plug quickly is Taming the Sun which is a very broad view of solar power and the coming transformation in how we power our societies. and All of this is relevant to security because the way in which people are trying to measure the weather inspires me to think about how do we measure the security stuff that we can't see and we don't have sensor networks for and we don't have satellites.
0: I'll have to check out Taming the Sun as well. I have a suspicion if we do this at scale. Will affect the albedo of the planet, but, uh, and it can create desert like conditions under some of those solar panels. So, yeah, but that's probably too much for this. So I have one more question for you. The premise here is all in. We haven't talked that much about risk as I try to sometimes, or about the motif of poker as I try to get into it. And in fact, the logo and the imagery around the podcast is like a, it's like a poker game. If I do a poker game for, those who've been on the show at some point, would you be part of that? Would you like to play poker with other security people and maybe talk about the security experiment with us? So, I have a bad poker face. That's even better. That's even better. <laughs> yeah, you know, please. better for stuff. you. Yeah, but it, really for the community. Are you going to do this for dollars or points, I suppose, is the question. I'm open to Charity game I'm in. i for charity. I'm game, for some other currency that we, we value in security. Besides cash, I'm totally up for that. But basically, I think it would be fun. And I'd like to see what people do when they're, when they're across the table from each other and having a good time. Sounds like a blast. Count me in. All right, Adam, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hopefully this has been useful to people listening and hopefully people get a better understanding of you and when you went all in on security and how and why. And I love your perspective on things. Thank you, Adam. Thank you.